Hi everyone, my name is Peter McCarthy and welcome to The Flockers, the Australian Bird Management Podcast. Now today we are having our very first episode and our discussion point is the silver gull. Now the silver gull is a, a major pest in districts and cities around Australia, uh, New Zealand and other parts of the South Pacific and into Asia. Now I also want to welcome everyone from say the northern hemisphere that might be thinking um, that uh, gaining some interest in our podcasts. Now the interesting thing about uh, silver gulls, it is a smaller seagull species, but when we look at some of the largest seagull species of the northern hemisphere, so such as the herring gull, the blackback gull, uh, the pacific gull and the like, the characteristics of these birds are all very similar and the management strategies that we would use and the impacts that these birds have on on buildings are also very similar. So let's just talk about the silver gull, but know that say we can draw a parallel with the characteristics of seagulls internationally. So my discussion points today will be very similar to most of the the presentations on on specific bird species. So today we'll talk about the name and identification of this bird, the similar species that might inhabit the same territory, its pest status in Australia and New Zealand, legal restrictions, distribution, behaviour, its food preferences, its overall impact as a pest bird species and the management strategies. Now the common name of this seagull is is the silver gull. It had a scientific name of Laris novae hollandiae which was reclassified to Croicocephalus novae hollandiae and so Croicocephalus is a genus of small to medium seagulls. Identification wise well there's so many characteristics that are classic in this bird when we look at seagulls. In this case we've got a bright red beak and legs, an overall white body, uh, soft grey wings and back and black primary feathers. The juveniles are also distinctive from the adults and they have a a darker, even almost black bill and legs that fade to a, a brown the brown eyes and mottling on the wings. Now the interesting thing is in the field we would say this species is monomorphic. The male and female are essentially the same. From a scientific perspective they could also be considered dimorphic because there is a, a scientific measurement protocol of measuring the width and the length of the bill, length of the toes or tarsus and the wingspan and the overall weight that can distinguish male and female. But overall, for our purposes, it's very difficult, if not, it's actually very, and so it's impossible in the field to determine the difference between adult male and female. Similar species to the silver gull in Australia, well, there really isn't any, to be honest. There are some larger species that inhabit the same uh, territories in southern Australia, and certainly in New Zealand as well, there are a number of um, seagull species that actually form pest species but in Australia we truly only have one pest bird species traditionally with um, silver gulls. In isolated situations we do get other birds that that cause problems around say abattoirs or fisheries and and so on but the silver gull is a smaller species. The other birds that tend to inhabit some of these territories like the kelp gull and the pacific gull are significantly larger and uh, have a, a very different physical characteristics, namely colouring. So the pest status of the silver gull, it is Australia's most significant um, pest seagull. Legal restrictions wise, well this is a native species to Australia and New Zealand and there are subspecies 
uh, in New Caledonia and uh, Papua, Papua New Guinea and Indonesia. So from a perspective here in Australia, they are protected or secured Australia-wide. So the birds, the fledglings, the nests, the eggs are also protected. So overall, there would be no lethal control uh, allowed. In some states and in some situations, some authorities may offer the opportunity for egg and nest destruction or possibly um, the uh, lethal control, but that tends to be uh, very isolated and very rare in, in this day and age. And so you'd be consulting your local authorities in Victoria, where I am today. You'd be discussing that with DELP and our department's land, land management. And in you know, New South Wales and other northern states, you'd be talking to Na National Parks and Wildlife or EPA. Distribution-wise, I did say that it is Australia's most common seagull. And while they were traditionally um, inhabiting the coastal areas and harbours of, uh, of our coastline and cities, it, it is now fair to say that with the, the urbanisation uh, and um, waterways inland and also the way we manage our food waste, that this bird has literally inhabited uh, all of Australia. So the silver gull congregates and nests in these harbour and, and, um, and cities and townships of Australia and their focus is the way they would actually move towards our food waste and so namely landfill sites and um, uh, sewerage treatment plants and also transfer stations where they would seek food. Now of course they'll also forage around the parks and gardens and watercourses of our of our streetscapes, uh, sporting facilities, industrial areas and beaches. Behavioural characteristics, well the seagull is a, gre a gregarious or co uh, colonial nester, so they'll nest en masse away from predators, away from human, human intervention and predators such as foxes and feral cats. So traditionally they would nest in grasslands and offshore islands. However with urbanisation and the prevalence of um, foxes and cats and again particularly where I am here in in Victoria the the presence of foxes has meant the the hundreds of thousands or perhaps the millions of silver gulls now nest only in say offshore islands and once those are filled which actually happens very quickly once nesting commences they would also tend to focus their attention on nesting around areas such as um, Mornington Peninsula, Frankston, Dandenong, Preston, Port Melbourne, um, Epping and the like. And what has happened over the last few decades is now that nesting has been consistently happening in those areas, they now have been, they've become these super nesting colonies. So the birds are nesting on roofs and they would actually seek out box gutters, air conditioning systems and um, solar panels and areas around these flat roofs where they could gain some level of protection. Now the interesting thing is these roofs not only provide protection from human intervention and predators, they also provide radiant warmth during the nesting season. So the nesting season, as we'll discuss, is during the winter months mostly and winter spring. And so these roofs are providing shelter, convenience um, and a location to digest food during the roost, but also nest and um, do so quite safely. And during this period of time, the um, roofs also offer fresh water. Well, we're collecting in uh, with condensation and rain, collecting in gutters. And so 
it's uh, very very important how these these birds have actually moved away from their their traditional nesting arrangements uh, to nesting in the the built environment. So nesting takes place very simple twigs and whatever's be whatever is collected, and um, just forms a very rudimentary nest, uh, and that can be. Um, gravel and feathers and droppings and twigs and so on and the nesting will take place on flat roofs or metal roofs which are gravel or gravel roofs and in the box gutters and those extremities that we see on on roofs so the nesting will occur twice a year and in Melbourne where I am the nesting will occur between May and October and plus or minus a month or two depending on uh, the climatic conditions at the time so silver gulls, they'll have one brood, uh, sorry, two broods a year, two to three eggs per clutch. The incubation period will be 24 days and the fledging period will be about the same. And it's, the silver gull young actually become very independent once they, they leave the nest. From a food perspective, well, seagulls, and in particular the silver gulls, are a true scavenger. So they'll fossick around for their natural food source, so fish, mollusks, crabs, crustaceans and the like. But these birds have truly adapted their food requirements or food preferences to the built environment and humans' ability to waste or waste food or dump food in large industrial landfill sites. And so the tip faces or the transfer stations or human uh, sewage waste uh, becomes a preference of food. And so then they'll fossick around some of the, the open bins and all of these things around our coastal towns and um, tourism areas as well. So its impact as a pest is significant because when we go to some of these areas, and while I've mentioned Melbourne because that's where I am, certainly around uh, Auckland and Sydney and uh, Wollongong and particularly some of these areas have these very large nesting colonies and some offshore nesting colonies like Wollongong and Sydney uh, and certainly in the harbour city we see large areas being impacted by the nesting of these birds. Well from that we then get large colonies setting up in local industrial areas. So the silver, silver gulls will deposit their droppings but also the bones and debris from undigested food and ends up on the roof spaces where they're nesting and roosting. So the droppings or the scats would be very damaging to these metal surfaces of the roofs because the droppings contain both urine and therefore uric acid and nitric acid and other corrosives and the solid waste as well. And so that can actually have a significant impact on the life expectancy of these roofs and in particular the gutters. So a researcher by the name of Ian Temby did a tremendous uh, paper back in the day and it is actually worth downloading and reading it's called pieces of silver and you'll find that on the internet and that talks about the financial implications of silver gulls and industrial areas around melbourne so it talks about the cost of roof replacement business interruption and the overall cost of um, treatment processes when it comes to deterring seagulls so during i'm oh, sorry due to their gregarious feeding behavior around landfill sites and waste treatment plants and sewerage, there's an expectation that the silver gulls bring back potential health concerns to these areas that they're nesting on rooftops. And so that actually brings a significant potential for health issues and risk 
in the workplace of those areas. And so illnesses and pathogens such as Salmonella, E. coli and others, as well as the respiratory issues associated with dried and airborne microscopic bacteria and particles that are, that are moved around from the droppings becomes quite a, a major concern. But overall, the damage to coatings, damage to glass, so glass is actually crazed and etched by the droppings. Solar panels are not only etched, but when they're covered in bird droppings are rendered completely useless. The vehicles around these buildings become potentially permanently damaged by bird droppings on um, the duco of the cars. But there's also an issue when we start getting the physical bulk of bird droppings and nesting material and also carcasses from natural fatalities um, accumulating in the gutters. So not only gutters do not last very long when it comes to these uh, the, the corrosive elements, but once the gutters are filled with uh, this debris, um, major rain events can turn um, these areas into uh, flooding events, both on roofs and, and, and moisture incursion into the building. From a management perspective, I'm going to touch on just a couple of concepts and each one of these is going to be future podcasts. So this will just be nice and brief. So first of all, when we're going out to assess a site, we're going to look at forming an understanding of the concept of bird pressure. So bird pressure is a concept that I heard out of the, the company I, I great contact with and the likes of Cameron Riddell out of Bird Barrier in the United States and they introduced the concept of bird pressure. Now bird pressure is essentially gaining an understanding of the commitment that the birds have to a particular site. And so when we assess a site, we might have a nesting rookery or we might have an alfresco dining area that's impacted by birds. You know, some, sometimes the seagulls are not necessarily impacting uh, a facility, just nesting. We do have lots of examples where silver gulls form a pest for whatever purpose they might just be, congregating in an area between a nesting region or nesting area and a, and a feeding zone. So there's, there's all sorts of different reasons why they're a pest. So we analyze a particular rooftop or whatever we've gone out to have a look and we'll assess the bird pressure. So this commitment that the birds will have will determine by what they're doing on the site, nesting, roosting, feeding, or loafing, how long they've been there, uh, perhaps the history of uh, behavior, and then we'll also look at the number of birds. And so that will actually help us analyze or determine whether we've got a light pressure situation, medium pressure situation, heavy, or even extreme. And so when we have large numbers of birds, like the hundreds or even the tens of thousands of birds nesting on a roof, we've got an extreme situation. So when we look at some of these areas, we're also going to look at what impact can we have on the birds other than a management strategy. Well, the interesting thing about silver gulls is they travel large distances to forage or scavenge for food or to obtain fresh water. See, while these birds are sea gulls or silver gulls, they still have to drink fresh water. And so around Melbourne, around Sydney, and certainly other regions of Australia, you see these birds covering vast distances between their food, water, and their roost. So it's fair to say too that we have very little impact on what we can do in our integrated approach when we're trying to control food and water. We really only have the ability to manage or alter or have an impact 
on the, the roost, which is where we try to limit their interest or exclude them from that location. And so we'll look at the bird pressure, we'll look at integrated pest management, great concepts to discuss in every element of, of bird management, but then we'll look at the building itself. What can we look at doing there? So in a light pressure situation, we might consider spikes. Spikes, bird spikes will only be useful with silver gulls because they have the ability to stand and nest on the spikes, but they, uh, uh, bird spikes will only be useful for parapet edge protection or roof edge protection to stop the birds from defecating over the edge. But we can still have spikes, but then we can still have an infested um, rooftop. And so we have to be aware of what we're trying to achieve. So in a light pressure situation, we may consider looking at various deterrents. And so there are acoustic devices. Now I have to say that I haven't had any success and so I don't use acoustic devices, but it's fair to say that, that acoustic devices, be it ultrasonic or, or distressed call sonic devices can be used for seagulls and they'd be used around um, areas in conjunction with other management strategies. And when we have a light or a medium pressure situation, we could also use visual deterrence. And so a classic example of a, a silver gull or seagull visual deterrence would be using reflectors or reflective light, like the eagle eye reflectors. And these are speeding devices that can be used to reflect sunlight back out towards the birds in quite strong flashes to deter them in flight. And again, in a light to medium pressure situation, that could be very useful. However, when we've got nesting birds and large numbers of birds, some of these things that I've just mentioned are going to be of little or no value. But then that's the beauty of going out and assessing the site. I always, I'm a firm believer that bird management systems don't fail. What happens is they either deteriorate because they haven't been managed or serviced, or it's been incorrect assessment of the site in the first place. And so, you know, I dare, dare say, and I, and I throw myself in this situation, it's very rare to see products fail. I see bird managers, bird managers fail and, and put myself in that um, category uh, where I've been learning over the last 30 years. And you have the wins and the losses of understanding the capabilities of systems and also predicting the behavior of, of pest birds. And all of these will be sort of great discussion points down the track particularly my own failures. And so from um, a medium pressure situation where well, we're starting to see either birds feeding or we've got a larger number of birds from a light pressure situations, but I'd still have open roof areas or parapets or areas around a, a, an alfresco dining area or wherever the birds are becoming a problem. We could use systems like bird shock, which is where we have a, a track system with stainless steel braids and then we have high voltage running down that braid and it gives the birds a memorable shock and that would certainly keep birds off ledges and roof extremities and parapets and architectural features. Now again, only for a light to medium pressure situation where I'm deterring birds off a roof before it becomes a nesting rookery. Or our, our real issue with bird shock is that with the hovering behavior of seagulls, particularly silver gulls, um, they deposit a lot of droppings onto the track, which over time can render it um, of little use. Other technologies we could look at would be laser technology. And so again, using a very strong agricultural style laser. And so there's been a lot of 
a lot of research done on laser technologies right back to the 1970s uh, where different spectrums of the laser light and different coloring has an impact on various bird species now again silver gulls being a night roosting bird on flat roofs is when you could have some impact using laser technology less competition with the sun though it can be operating during the day what you're trying to do is limit the time that the birds are spending on that building and the best way to do that would be at night using lasers now once we start seeing birds nesting on these sites we start uh, allocating the term heavy pressure or extreme pressure so when we've got this and and we would see this around harbour sides of sydney uh, and wollongong because of say the the nesting rookeries of silver gulls out in say the five islands area and certainly around the areas i discussed in melbourne and in addition to that, certainly the, the silver gull and the seagull issues that I've seen around New Zealand, we start looking at options of alternatives that are designed for heavy to extreme pressure. So we can look at single hot wired electrical sh shock wires and I start seeing those in grid, grid patterns and we've looked at using those here in Australia and I've seen that in New Zealand as well. But more so in some of these areas that I've discussed, we look at elevated netting. Elevated netting is where we construct poles over large numbers of either solar panels and air conditioning systems and just over these flat roofs where we get large numbers of birds. So the, the poles can be two to 2.2 meters just to allow contractors and workers to work underneath or access these areas for servicing underneath the netted area. So we have a pole and then that is um, attached to the roof in 10 by 10 meter grids and then a cable network is also uh, tensioned to fasten these poles but also just to um, offer a framework in which to attach the net and then the net is attached using stainless steel clips and fittings around this perimeter to actually give you a very nice neat um, but very obvious netted area over these roofs. Now, netting can also be very useful when you have plant rooms or um, shades around air conditioning systems, which has already created the, the, not just the platform, but also the framework. And so that can also be useful. But generally, once we get large roof areas, the elevated netting tends to be the most, ex most useful thing to this point. Now, one of the beauty of bird management over this last 30 years has been a tremendous amount of product development and introduction of new technologies. And I haven't had really the opportunity to talk about all of that just in this discussion, but one area that really excites me of late is the introduction of using electromagnetic fields. So electromagnetic fields in the form of the system called Flockoff. Now Flockoff is a product that's being introduced to Australia this month, and so here we are in October 2022, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. And Flockoff is a, a wire system that uses capacitors at regular intervals, in fact, about every 1.8 meters, and it has a, a reactor or an energizer type system that runs uh, sends a frequency down the, uh, the wire. Now, that wire then re, um, moves between these capacitors, and the capacitors emit an electromagnetic field, and that field can be used around the perimeters or the parapets of of buildings and can also be used uh, in a grid pattern when you have uh, birds nesting throughout the roof. 
The beauty of it also, um, seagulls don't always just impact as a nesting bird. They also can impact in stealing food around alfresco dining areas and a, a range of different situations. And so wire systems like Flockoff can be used on balustrades and areas where people are, are, um, are, commute, are, are communing or, or congregating. It's just that whenever there's an area where there's people, we can use a, a insulated wire system so um, people can touch the system if need be. But on these vast roofs, when we would normally consider elevated netting, which is very obvious, um, systems like Flockoff only have a profile of about 50 millimeters. And so what Flockoff does is actually it interrupts the navigational ability of the bird. So as they fly to a rooftop, be it the extremities of the, the parapet or the, the gutter edge or right in the center, it's going to impact their ability to understand the grid lines of their own navigational processes. So to humanize this, they're getting some sort of displacement, an uneasy feeling or vertigo, and they're flying away. And so it's such a, a strong and measurable um, electromagnetic field in how this works. It's really quite exciting. So I, I look forward to actually talking more about electromagnetic fields with researchers from the States that have analyzed the use of this system, uh, but also with the engineer from the company Flockoff. And also we have installations with various pest management companies around the country in the commencing in the next couple of weeks. So we'll be doing drone footage, which of course won't help us for this podcast, but certainly we'll be able to share those details through our YouTube channel uh, and also just bring some of the stories and testimonials from those installations. The other element that we need to look at when it comes to silver goals is their prevalence around solar panels. And so we would traditionally use solar exclusion mesh around solar panels. However, with silver gulls, they're nesting directly on or around the solar panels as well as underneath. I mean, underneath is the primary area that they're going to be looking for just because of the warmth created and the shelter that, it, that, is, that they allow. Um, but of course, therein lies the issue that the impacts are there both on, on the roof um, and potential damaged with nesting material underneath there with fire and, and also the damage to the solar panels as we discussed. So exclusion mesh can be useful, but in a lot of cases, we would tend to look at netting over the top or of course, as I've just mentioned, new technology like electromagnetic fields looks very exciting in that situation. So that's all I really wanted to share today. We're going to actually do a number of podcasts on each of those different management strategies. We're also going to look at discussions on how we analyze a facility or an issue, be it for whatever species of bird, but certainly how we analyze a site to understand the best way forward. And then I'll interject the different interviews that I'm conducting with various professionals, researchers, and people around Australia and the world in um, what they do in their, their uh, endeavors in bird management. So for today, I'd like to say thanks for joining me. And this has been The Flockers, the Australian Bird Management Podcast. And we'll hear or see you all very soon. Bye for now.